Hi, I'm Jeff Parker, the writer of Future Quest, and you're listening to a podcast named Scooby-Doo. Yeah! back to another episode of a podcast named Scooby-Doo, the show that takes a behind-the-scenes peek at this 50-year franchise of monsters, mysteries, and meddling kids through commentary and conversation. I'm your host, Mike Josek. Thanks for joining me. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to be going back to uh, talking to Scooby-Doo people. After a, a brief digression last episode, last two episodes actually, where I spoke to comic book writer and uh, DC Hanna-Barbera first and second wave writer, Mark Russell. Uh, Mark was responsible for the Flintstones and the Snagglepuss Chronicles, Exit Stage Left. By the way, if you haven't checked out that uh, interview there, you, I would highly recommend going back and giving it a listen. It was a great conversation, as most of the chats I have with folks on this show are great. But this time around, uh, like I said, we're back to form. We're back to talking to somebody who's worked on the Scooby franchise, and that person is none other than Charles M. Howell. Now, Charles has written quite a bit in animation. He started off at Hanna-Barbera uh, as a young writer and has since written for many shows including Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, and The 7D for Disney. Many of those projects with Tom Ruger, who he knew from working on Scooby because Charles wrote for the new Scooby and Scrappy-Doo show and the new Scooby-Doo Mysteries, as well as the 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo and a pup named Scooby-Doo. Actually, Charles wrote the the pilot episode, the first episode of a pup named Scooby-Doo, introducing sort of the new format and the the new youth paradigm that show featured. I had a really great uh, chat with Charles, and once again, this interview is going to be broken up into two parts. We talk a little bit about uh, Charles's background, we talk about getting into animation, writing for animation. Charles is also an animator, which was an interesting thing to find out. I had no idea. I thought he was just a writer, so that was kind of cool. And as to be expected, we talk about his experience writing for uh, Scooby, Shaggy, Scrappy, Daphne, and occasionally Fred and Velma too. Before we get into the actual conversation, I just want to give a shout out to Conrad Terminus, who uh, many of you might know from the Scooby fan community. He suggested uh, that I speak to Charles and help set up the interview, so big thumbs up. Thanks again, Conrad Terminus. Appreciate the assist. And I don't really have any Scooby news or podcast news to really throw out here, so I'm just going to let her go right into the interview. Uh, I'm sure you guys have been chomping at the bit for genuine Scooby material. So without further ado, I'll let you get to the audio, and as always, I will see you on the other side. Wow! We hit the jackpot! Yeah, jackpot! So we're here with uh, Charles Howell, who is a writer on Scooby-Doo for the new Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo series, Pup Named Scooby-Doo, 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. Does that cover it? Did I miss one? I, I, you know, the, Scrappy was, was in it when I started and had been for a couple of years or whatever. I don't really remember what the title was at that point. They were half hours, 
Uh, we'd gone back to a, a half-hour format, I believe. I don't, I don't think we were writing 11 or 12 minutes at that point. I think we were doing half hours. Uh, but, but Scrappy was certainly in it. Yeah, they, they had just come out of a time where it was only Scooby and Shaggy. And, and we, I think we got rid of Scrappy at some point. I, I don't really remember. But yeah, so it's almost my first writing job. Starting in 82, I did a bunch of them freelance, and then I got hired on staff at Hanna-Barbera working for Tom Ruger. Tom and I knew each other going back to the 70s. We were both animators together, basically our first jobs in the industry. And he was the one who said, we've got to write. (laughs) (laughs) We've got to write. And and in those days, you still had all the old guys from the days of the classic Warner Brothers and and Tom and Jerry MGM cartoons and uh, Bugs Bunny and all that stuff. Those guys were still working and I just, I figured, oh, we're not going to write? What, what are you kidding me? They, they're writing, and, and when they die or retire or whatever, it's going to be the generation under them. There was already a, a whole bunch of people who were, you know, in their 50s. Tom and I were in our 20s, and writing is not going to happen. <laughs> but he went over to Filmation, got a job as a writer, and I followed him there. And uh, he, he did quite a bit there. I, I worked only briefly there as a writer. I also did storyboards and animated there. And uh, then Tom went over to Hanna-Barbera, and I followed him. He hired me to write some Scoobies. So uh, I, I did, I don't know, a dozen or something in that first year and a half. And then uh, I got hired on staff, I think, for the Snorks, was the one that, that I got hired for. And I don't know, I was there for about five years, I guess. So what was your first exposure to Scooby, like, prior to working with him? You, were you a viewer yeah, we used to watch Saturday morning cartoons when I was a kid. I think, I, I mean, I, I wasn't a little kid when, when Scooby-Doo, I was about 12, I guess, in, in what, 68, was it that it came on? 69. 69. Well, okay, so I would have turned 13 in 69. Uh, but anyway, I, I was still I was still watching cartoons because it's what I wanted to do for a living. I, I went to CalArts in their animation program in the 70s when I, when I uh, that was my college. Yeah, so I I remember growing up on it. So you knew at a young age that you wanted to do animation? Oh, always. Always. What was the I, catalyst for that? What what kicked you into that? I liked cartoons. But, you know. <laughs> what else? And I did I did little flip books and, you know, all that stuff when I was a kid. So yeah, no, I I just uh, I always liked that stuff. Yeah. And so and it worked out. I I was working at Hanna-Barbera the summer of my uh, sophomore year in college, the summer after my sophomore year, I, I uh, got my first job uh, at Hanna-Barbera as an assistant animator. And I guess Tom and I started working there in like, what would that have been, 80, 79 or 80, and we were both, uh, we shared a cubicle uh, as animators. And so, uh, so I don't, so I, what was my catalyst? I just liked cartoons. I liked all the old Bugs Bunny stuff and, and the Disney features and everything. So yeah, so that's what, that's where I was coming from. And you just ever kept, since, you just kept up with it. Yeah, I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I I yeah. remember well, like when I was eight or something or seven or whatever, wanting to be an animator. And I, I, there was there was no home video in those days. I would put a tape recorder. I put the microphone from a tape recorder up next to the TV to record. You know, that's about the best you could do. And I was trying to figure out how you could get, like, get a Super 8 camera and film right. uh, off the 
off the screen and then have a have a, a microphone there. And so, so I mean, I always was interested in that stuff. So you went to Cal Arts. Yeah. You came out, started yeah. at at Hanna Barbera. Oh, you started at Hanna Barbera, then you followed Tom to Filmation. Right. And then you guys came back to Hanna Barbera. Yes. That's and right. that's when you started on Scooby. Um, I started freelancing. Tom went back to Hanna Barbera first and got, uh, when he was put in charge of, of scripts for Scooby, when he was made the head writer, he asked me to do some stuff for him. So th And then I did a bunch of them, freelance, and eventually went on staff. Writing is kind of, uh, for me, I mean, I always wanted to make cartoons, but my family, everybody's a writer in my family. <laughs> so it, it's sort of, I didn't really think that was a skill. I just sort of what you do when you fall out of bed is you write. It's just one of those basic, you know, it's like clipping your toenails or something. It's just what what you do. Right. But I wanted to make cartoons, and, and I'm glad it worked It worked its way into writing because uh, that's a, a more natural skill for me, I think. Now, looking at your IMDb, it has you listed as an animator on the Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo show. Is that... The assistant job that you were talking about? No, uh, that was when Tom and I shared a cubicle as animators. Okay. So, I, which would have been like '79. Yeah, yeah. And then he went over to uh, to Filmation right after that, and and got his first writing job, and I went over there uh, just after that. Okay. So you were actually animating at Hanna Barbera prior to yes. leaving, and then you came back as a writer. As a writer, that's right. Okay, that's that's kind of an interesting. <laughs> It's the, you know, it's all storytelling. I mean, uh, at Filmation, I went back and forth between writing, animating, doing storyboards, and so on. And then when I came back to, and, and did some of that in between writing freelance scripts for Tom, because the season would be over and there wouldn't be any script assignments, so I'd go back to Filmation and uh, pick up storyboard work, right. or, or which was always great. I figured, you know, if I can do all these different crafts in this business, I can work year-round. Because everything was seasonal in those days. There were just three networks. And the show started in the fall. It started writing scripts in about, I don't know, February or something. And uh, then the scripts go to the storyboard artists starting sometime in the spring. And then it goes to the animators, and you work as an animator all the way up to the Christmas holidays. The shows start airing in September, but you've got new episodes all the way to, I don't know, May or something. So, yeah, so I did a little bit of everything. Well, Filmation would have been a little bit different, too, because they were all in-house, right? Uh, scripts or... Animation. Animation? Everybody was in-house as far as animation goes, I, I think. Oh, I thought by that point, Hanna-Barbera had started farming out. They farmed out cells. They, they had cells done overseas. And, and they had some... I mean, they had freelance people around town. They weren't sending stuff overseas quite yet, I okay. don't think. They were starting to play around with that. It was mostly, you know, in the old days when it was cells, that, that is the most expensive part of making a cartoon, is, is painting all those cells. And they'd moved to Xerox by then, so that they didn't uh, they didn't have to have inkers, you know, ink the, ink right. the cells. That, and, but it still was... Uh, but but I, rem I remember cells being done in-house, too. But I think they were just starting to send stuff over to, uh, I don't know, the mysterious East... I don't really remember. I don't I think, remember. I think Hanna Barbera was sending down to Mexico too. Maybe, maybe the union was 
fighting with them about all that stuff. They wanted to get work here as much as possible. And every time the, con the union contract would come up for renewal, suddenly there'd be desks in the hallways, and they'd be like hiring people to, to do the scripts and do the stuff. Look at all these people were hiring. And then as soon as, <laughs> as the contract with the union was over, uh, everybody cleared out, and they employed as few people as possible. But, um, yeah. What was the vibe so, at the studio like at that time? I mean, they'd kind of, they've been running for a number of years at that point. They'd had their kind of big shows, and uh, they were doing a lot of, like, licensed shows, like you said, the Snorks and the Smurfs. And they, just... they, they, they did whatever they could sell, yeah. basically. The, the Snorks and the Smurfs, they didn't do a lot. I mean, they did mostly uh, original stuff. But, yeah, the Snorks and the Smurfs, the uh, Belgian co uh, uh, comic strip writer named Peo, uh, had developed the Snorks. No, he developed the Smurfs. Smurfs, yeah. He had. He didn't have much to do with the Snorks, but it was the same company. It was like the the, the company that that handled Peo's properties around the world it was trying to like make a new uh, thing that was pretty much a ripoff of the Smurfs, but they were underwater. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so that's what I was hired on when I went over to Hanna Barbera in the mid '80s. By that time. So, yeah, again, uh, what was the kind of vibe like in the studio? Was it sort of a still a hotbed of kind of creativity and activity, or was it a little bit more in the groove and they kind of had their rhythm figured out? And It was a, it was a workplace. Yeah, I mean, they, they, it, was, uh, it was where you went to work. I remember my first summer there, we were all, all of us assistants, uh, a bunch of new trainees. And I guess I... I progressed animation pretty quickly because I'd already been to CalArts. A lot of the people who were trainee assistants uh, had just come out of, like, art school, and they didn't really know anything about animation yet. But um, a bunch of us were in this room. We were assistant animators and in-betweeners, and uh, we would see these the, the old-timers, like Kenny Muse, who had worked on the, on the Tom and Jerry cartoons, you know, in the early 40s. And he would come in to uh, would come in there on his walker, and I think he even had <laughs> one of those oxygen things with the tube under the nose, and and he would he would come in there and he would pick up. I mean, I, I remember I was struggling to do twenty five feet a week, uh, which all of us were. That's about what all of us were doing when we started to be animators. But uh, he would come in and do two hundred feet. He would he would come in two hundred feet with the scenes, uh, uh, you know, on his walker with his oxygen tank. And uh, there was one assistant, this guy, I don't know what ever happened to him, he was, he was from Texas. And he was in his 20s, but we were all about the same age. And he would watch Kenny Muse going down the hall, and he would say, it's the limited animation what's killing him, that's what, <laughs> the limited animation. And uh, he was kind of a character, uh, this guy, I forget his name. But anyway, uh, so we would watch the old timers coming in, and I mean, I remember just thinking, I'm never even going to be an animator. There's so many, there's so many generations of people ahead of right. me. Uh, but well, I remember, like, I didn't know too much about Hanna Barbera other than just the stuff that I watched as a kid until I started doing the podcast, and as, as well as Scooby Doo, I kind of cover Hanna Barbera as well when I can. Just you know, getting in there and getting my hands dirty and finding out that like Mike Maltese and some of those Warner Brothers story guys, like all the people that funneled into that studio, like amazing. Yeah. It was, and, and Joe was still out selling the shows, and Bill was running the production end of it. They, they were actively involved through the 80s. <laughs> Joe was quite a guy, and I don't know how, how many 
stories you've heard about Joe Barbera. Heard a few. But, <laughs> yeah, I remember he was going to sell. You might even be able to correct me on this one if I get it wrong. He was he was trying to sell a show about a, a big dog that was at a pet store, and it was in the window, and and the network said, you know, we. We're tired of dogs. There are a lot of things. He said, "Did I say a dog? I meant a gorilla." <laughs> well, what's its name? A uh, Magilla gorilla. And and that's how that show was sold on the spot. He Joe could tap dance in front of network executives, or uh, I think actually at that point it was syndication, and they were working for like General Mills or Kellogg's or somebody. Um, but uh, yeah, no, Joe was a Joe was great. I remember having story meetings with him and stuff. He was. Uh, he was really great. Bill Hanna was kind of a, a tough old guy. He uh, watched the pennies, and he, he did some uh, directing, timing. Well, he uh, needed, I mean, he was the guy that kind of kept the wheels moving on production, right? So. Yeah, but he was also, uh, he, he uh, was, sang in a barbershop quartet. <laughs> he, he was, and he was kind of character. I, when I did um, a feature that ended up being called Rockin' with Judy, Judy Jetson, which was a, a TV feature, and I, I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to write the songs. And I, and Hannah Barbera was famous for uh, not letting you have royalties on songs. Bill primarily would would rewrite the songs, and then it would be by Bill Hanna and Hoyt Curtin, who was a music guy. And that right. was, and and when I was starting on this thing, I, I really wanted to write the lyrics to the songs. And then it goes off to a music person who writes the music. I really wanted to, so I went up to the lawyer. Their 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 uh, head lawyer who was on the on the premises, and I said, you know, I really want to write these songs, and I will I will sign away all rights so that so that Bill doesn't feel he has to rewrite them. And the guy was just, you know, <laughs> he was just sort of stunned. I guess nobody had ever done that before. But you know, I, I liked what I was doing, and I, I I was proud of what I did, and so he said, well, okay, and they made up some sort of a thing that I could sign. <laughs> and I signed it, and then I was writing these songs. God, that script was so long; it was the size of a telephone book. By the time it was done, it was a was it a two hour feature? I guess I don't remember. Uh, well, I and, talked to uh, Dwayne Poole, and he told me that those scripts were like like the the half hour scripts were sixty pages long sometimes. Right, which just That's, stunned me. But well, I can only break, imagine what a two hour one would be. You're, you're breaking down all the shots is part of the reason. Yeah, it's the descriptions. Yeah. Right, and every every uh, slug line at the beginning of a shot. But anyway, I, I, I wrote these songs, and uh, one day I had written this song. That Judy goes and, and some horrible forces like destroyed this planet with these little furry characters on it. And there's the little, the tiniest one who says, uh, "I want to go. I want my home back." And uh, I don't know why I'm uh, tearing up here, but uh, and Judy said, "Well, you know what? You don't need the same home. A house full of love is a home." And I wrote, I wrote these lyrics for this song. You know, and you do scansion or whatever, and then it gets sent off to the to the music people. And one day, Bill Hanna came up and knocked on my door. Now, Bill Hanna had an office downstairs, and you never saw him around the studio. He came up and knocked on my door, and he was quiet. And I was, I was like startled. And he said, this song that you wrote, this is great. <laughs> I, he wanted to come up and compliment me on the on the lyrics I'd written for that song. Then he rewrote it all anyway. I mean, if, if, well, it was like he liked it so much that he had to roll up his sleeves and get involved. 
uh, sort of a compliment in a way, although I didn't like really the changes in the lyrics he made. But so, you know, the, these were guys who, and everybody thought of Bill Hanna as like a tough businessman, and he was. That's why you had to set, sign away your, your rights to the lyrics and everything. But he, he, was, a, he was a softie at heart. So did you so, have like a background in, in music at all or what? No, uh... I, mean, I was a writer and, you know, you write with scansion. You write you write verse, essentially, is what you're writing. And with a good hook line and, and you know, rhymes. And and then it goes off to the... I, I, I wasn't doing anything about the composing. I was writing verse. Right. That's right. what a song is. Yeah. So at that point, were Bill and Joe still fairly hands-on with the studio? Absolutely. Joe did all the selling. You saw them very regularly? Oh, they were there every day. And, uh, and, and you know, I had story meetings with Joe. So, yeah, no, they were very involved. Bill was mostly in his office. Uh, Joe, you had story meetings with. He was more involved in that part of it. Bill was, was pinching pennies <laughs> and, uh, and timing sheets. Maybe he was pinching pennies, too. But he was, he was, he was uh, more involved in the, uh, the, the logistics of the thing, and the, the business end of it. It's one of the things that sort of fascinates me about the studio, and it's it's part of the reason why I'm kind of doing this project, too, because, like, Hanna-Barbera has this reputation with the, the planned animation and the penny pinching and stuff as just being, you know, it's a factory, and it just, it, it looked for, you know, holes in the market and was like, let's make a show to fill that hole, and they just pumped stuff out, but, I mean... The studio itself, I mean, Joe and Bill kind of revolutionized that whole, I mean, just introducing animation like that to television, and then the creatives that flowed into that place, and when you talk to people, they talk about how it was, you know, it was a workplace, but it was also kind of very familial. And Well, there wouldn't be television animation if it hadn't been for them. Theatrical animation was just going away. Uh, even Disney was suffering. They would do a new feature about every three or four years, you know, and that was it, and then their features got worse and worse and worse. Uh, they, <laughs> everything was, you know, there just was no, there was no money. So uh, Hannah and Barbera came up with this system of doing uh, limited animation and saved, you know, saved the industry, really. And then, then, then what revived it in the late 80s and into the 90s was home video sell-through. Right. Suddenly you could, you, you know, that now everybody does a feature every six months or something because there's money. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but Bill, Bill and Joe saved it for 25 years. So you said that you were very big on animation as a, as a kid. That's what made you want to go into animation. Were you aware enough of who was actually making the cartoons that you were watching that when you got to an environment like Hanna-Barbera, you knew, like, who you were working with? Like, were you... Oh, sure. I mean... Starstruck, I, I guess, for lack of a better word? I didn't work that closely. Those, those big old guys uh, had... Uh, Mostly worked out of the studio. They they didn't work in house. Okay. Uh, but yeah, no, I was I was absolutely Star Trek. I, Star Trek. I, I worked with uh, Frizz Freeling somewhat and and uh, Tex Avery and th those guys were still around. So yeah, no, I, I was absolutely Star Trek. I certainly knew who Bill and Joe were. Yeah. I, I thought of them in terms of you know for television animation at that time in the sixties. They really were doing the best. I remember thinking of Filmation as the cheap place, you know, <laughs> the inferior place. But uh, Hanna-Barbera was, you know, the good stuff. It was the good television animation in the 60s. Well, I remember hearing that Lou Scheimer tried, like, he had a thing about he wanted everything done in the U.S. And that's why 
they were he, kind of doing their stuff on the cheap. Well, he did keep everything here, you know, uh, when when I was working for them. I don't know if it ended up that way. At some point, you have to compete, you know. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, he wanted to keep everything here. And, and so they took animation to a different level. There was a lot of stock animation in their things, scenes that were pre-animated that were used over and over again. I mean, you know, the, the cells and everything were done, yeah. like the Lone Ranger on his horse or the Lone Ranger getting onto his horse or, you know, whatever. And you would just use those. They try, I think they tried to do like, you know, 40%. Hanna-Barbera never did that. They had some stock animation, but they never really used it. They did limited animation, but almost everything was, every show was done from scratch. They, I don't, th they, they never approached it uh, the way Filmation did. Uh, in those days, anyway, they, they everything was done new and fresh. It was limited. It was planned animation, but it was uh, done for each show. Now, I was going to ask you. You've mentioned limited animation a couple times. It's what people usually refer to it as. In uh, Iwo Takamoto's biography, he referred to it as planned animation. He didn't like the limited animation. I was wondering what was it referred to in house. I, I think everybody in the industry referred to it as limited animation. I mean, that's. But but we didn't. Was it derogatory at the time, or was that something that's just sort of picked up some a well, reputation over the years? It wasn't derogatory, but it was, you know, we knew we weren't doing uh, Fantasia, oh, yeah. you know. <laughs> so in that sense, it was it was inex it was more inexpensive and, and all of that. And uh, but no, I mean, it wasn't particularly derogatory the, the term, but it was we, we referred to it as limited animation. Although we didn't really, there's no reason to say that every day. You know, you're doing yeah. your you're doing your animation. So, but yeah, it was referred to as limited animation. So when you started on Scooby, was that just another kind of gig at Hanna-Barbera or were you like, I'm working on Scooby? <laughs> I, I had, as I said, I had grown up with Scooby and, uh, and it was, it was fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I liked it. I, the stuff I'd been writing at, at Filmation, uh, and I wasn't uh, there as a writer very long. I might, my first job was writing at Filmation. My first writing job was writing Filmation, and, I, and I, I think I was there a month. Uh, the, the guy who was in charge of the writing department just kind of hated me. We, I, I, I don't know, it's just a weird vibe, Art Nadell. Uh, and uh, so I didn't stay in the writing department there very long. Uh, and then I went over to animation and storyboards there. But yeah, get, getting to work on Scooby, I mean, it was still just a job, but it was a show that I knew. It was an entertaining show, uh, I felt. They're, they're really in a in a bad period at that point because everything they had the, these older directors and stuff everything was timed so slowly and the quality of the drawing i think was really going downhill yeah at that so i i i feel you know i always felt like i can't make this good i can do a good script and, and i really got into the stuff i mean I, I really had fun writing those uh those episodes but then you'd see what came out the other end, and it was like, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> the production value, there was no production value. But we did what we could with the scripts, and we enjoyed ourselves. We made ourselves laugh, you know, and wrote this stuff. So, you know, it was, it, it was especially fun writing for Scooby-Doo. I noticed for the, for the shows that you did work on, uh, the Scooby-related shows, you've only got kind of two, three credits sort of per show. Some of them were one, like you wrote the one pup and you wrote the one uh, new Scooby-Doo mystery, the Nutcracker Scoob. Was that considered like a staff writing job that you were on the show or were those freelance? Uh, the, the, 
the year that I wrote the most Scoobies, and I'm, it was over a dozen, uh, was Freelance. Uh, and then they brought me on staff for the Snorks. But I continued to write Scoobies whenever, whenever there was, you know, they kept you working. So the Snorks, when they would have a season break or whatever, uh, I would write for Scooby. But, you know, uh, IMDb, they only have a, a small number of those early animated shows. They just don't have a very good catalog of them. So... I know that, that, you know, for a long time, just up until a couple of years ago, you'd look up uh, Animaniacs and it would say, Steven Spielberg, executive producer, seven episodes or something. Well, <laughs> it was the executive producer for the whole thing. Yeah. But no one had really gone through. And and uh, the stuff that was that they were putting up on IMDb before IMDb was, you know, the stuff that 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 was done before IMDb came along. They, they sort of have to go back in time and look for that stuff, and, and they haven't done it. And so I don't know what it says about my Scoobies on there. Okay, so I, for like... I, the, I wrote more than they list. So for the new Scooby and Scrappy-Doo show, it has you uh, uh, Scooby a la mode and where's Scooby-Doo. You've got a oh, lot more that season? <laughs> God, yeah. Uh, Nut, Nutcracker Scoob, and it's one that I hate this title. Night Louse at the White House, yes. which was... A haunted White House script, and yeah, no, I, I wrote about a dozen. Uh, there was a, a Showboat Scooby, and I don't, I don't know how many of those actually are on IMDb. But... Actually, you're you have two credits on IMDb because you have like Charlie Howell and you have Charles M. Howell. I had I had all these different. A couple of years ago, I had like five different versions of me on IMDb. There was a Charlie Howell, there was a Charles Howell, whatever. They were all, and and I guess they thought. The Charles Howell, who was an animator, must be different from the Charles Howell, who was a writer or whatever. And I, I finally contacted them and I said, you know, these are all me. Uh, and, and so they combined the they combined them. But yeah, you get the different. And, and we, I combined them. I was uh, Charles M. Howell IV for Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain. And that's where I got the Emmys. So I said, we put them all under that one because that's what people are going to look for. <laughs> but it's a little stuffy, Charles M. Howell IV. But... That's where everything ended up. Right. So were the episodes uh, assigned, or did you have to pitch? Oh, you you pitched. Uh, you would write premises, and sometimes I'd be there in, in there with Tom, and we'd say, what about we do this, what about we do that? But then the, the network had to look at premises and decide which ones they wanted to buy. We wrote one that was at the Statue of Liberty, or I wrote it, and we were doing a parody of Hitchcock's uh, Saboteur, I think is the, the thing, where they, where they climb up into the the torch of the Statue of Liberty, whatever. And we did that with Scooby. And uh, originally, that was supposed to be like an around-the-world kind of thing, like North by Northwest or whatever, uh, where they, they go to Mount Rushmore, and then the clues would lead them to the Sphinx in Egypt, and then it would then they'd wind up at the Statue of Liberty and everything. And the network said, you know what? Let's just do one of these fully. We were... We we were you know cracking each other up with the the whole concept of just going all around to the all these different landmarks. And they said, let's just do the Statue of Liberty. So the the network had that kind of involvement. Well, we had a great network with ABC. Jenny Trias and uh, Amy Simon. They were I think they may be the best network people I've ever worked with. They didn't try to micromanage. They liked our stuff. They liked they laughed. Yeah, no, they were they were really great. But then they'd they'd pitch in and they'd say, "Why don't you concentrate on this part of this uh, story, or or do more of this, or whatever?" But they didn't uh, they didn't micromanage. 
So you said the network actually got to choose which episodes got produced? Oh, yeah. No, you would submit premises to the network, and they would say, oh, we'll take this one and this one. We don't want this one, or whatever. Their premises like, you know, half a page to a, a page yeah. kind of description of a story, and, and then, yeah, they would choose, absolutely. Uh, I've never heard that before. <laughs> no, no that, that's always true. That's true on every show done for a network. But, yeah, they would absolutely choose them. Interesting. We would them we would generate them but then they they got to pick what was the perception of scooby at the studio at that time it had already been running for a number of years it kind of i wondered like was it losing its shine or was it still sort of that's why i think like that's why a character like scrappy do was added they wanted to have something new you know we we don't want to have it uh, the network did uh, we we need to be able to promote this as a, like a new version of Scooby. So it, it changed every couple of years. Uh, but it was a juggernaut. And I was glad that, that I got to write for those characters. We, people used to refer to Scrappy-Doo as Crappy-Doo, as people in the studio. And uh, I had fun with him. I, I, I liked him. But people sort of resented that these new things had to be added every couple of years. Some people did. I mean, I I just took it as it came, and I I just uh, it was a it was a fun show to write for in all of its permutations. And that brings to a close part one of my conversation with Scooby Doo writer Charles Howell. Just want to thank Charles for being a guest on the show. Super appreciate him taking the time to sit down and have a chat with me. I think Charles has also said he's interested in doing a commentary, so looking forward to maybe setting that up in the near future. Also, again, quick shout out to Conrad Terminus for helping set this up in the first place. Pat yourself on the back, sir. And I also just want to point out that in the time between recording the intro and recording this outro, I have just learned that Harlan Ellison has passed away. Now for Scooby fans, for anyone who is a Mystery Incorporated viewer, you will know that Harlan made an appearance in two episodes of that series. Also happens to be two of my favorite episodes of that series. The first being The Shrieking Madness, which uh, was written by Adam Beechin, directed by Kurt Gaeta, featured uh, Chargar Gothicon and uh, a great H.P. Lovecraft Cthulhu Mythos spoof parody homage. And in that episode, Harlan Ellison appears as Harlan Ellison. A great guest spot, guest voice, uh, coming in being himself, uh, apparently knowing Velma's mom, which I'd love to know the backstory to that, but tragically we never will. And Harlan also featured in the finale, the series finale, not season finale, well, the season finale of season two as well as the series finale, titled Come Undone, which was written by Michael Ryan and directed by Victor Cook. Uh, Victor Cook, of course, being guest of the show only a few episodes ago and spoilers if you haven't seen mystery incorporated but at the end of the series the gang is kind of standing around wondering what they're going to do and harlan ellison contacts them much like mr e would contact them throughout the the show and basically says hey gang there's like a lot of crazy stuff out there you should go out and investigate let's do this and they go off on kind of the new adventures which again tragically we never got to see but it's a great return of a great voice guest and uh, yeah, tragically, we have lost Harlan. On Twitter today, Christine Vallada, uh, under the direction of Ellison's wife, Susan, uh, basically asked her to announce that he died in his sleep. 
uh, earlier today. There's a beautiful quote from Harlan saying, For a brief time I was here, and for a brief time I mattered. And uh, I think it can be said that despite being cantankerous and combative, Harlan was an incredibly interesting human being. He was a very talented writer. And science fiction and speculative fiction would not be what it is without Harlan's presence in it. And a light has certainly gone out with his passing. And moving on from that somber note, I hope you guys are looking forward to coming back for part two of my interview with Charles. I believe it should be coming out. It'll be coming out no later than two weeks, but this episode is a little bit later than the bi-weekly schedule I was originally planning. So if I can get it out in a week, I'll get it out in a week and kind of reset that bi-weekly schedule. Otherwise, two weeks, no later. But as always, you can keep track on Twitter at uh, ScoobyDooCast. I'm always posting the episodes there and generally trying to keep you guys apprised of what's going on. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search podcast name ScoobyDoo on Facebook. Uh, Like and uh, follow the page. And I also have the Instagram account, a podcast named Scooby-Doo there as well. There's also the blog, scooby-doocast.wordpress.com. And there's the YouTube channel. And then also, of course, iTunes. All places where you can uh, comment, review, rate, like, follow, share, subscribe. Let me know what you think. Uh, You got something to say? You got a request? You got a question? Any of those uh, social media platforms... Oh, and there's also the Gmail account. If uh, I, It's so infrequently used, I almost never think about it. ScoobyPodcast at gmail.com if you want to send me an email. So let me know what you think. Uh, send me any correspondence through there. And I really don't have anything else, so I'm going to get out of your hair. I look forward to seeing you guys with the next episode. Uh, hope you enjoyed this one. If you, if you liked the do in part one, you are going to very much like the do in part two. So be sure to come back. And with that... Thank you guys again so much for clicking on the show, listening to the show. Uh, I appreciate each and every one of you. Take care, keep fit, play safe, and remember... Jinkies is not actually a word. Everybody cheer! This is how we solve the mystery. This is how we solve the mystery. So in summation, this narration is my donation art of mystery solving dictation and here's what the bad guys say when they play where the law forbids what a kind of way with it too if it wasn't for you meddling kids this is how we solve the mystery bye there's a lot of meddling to do and a lot of mysteries out there that need solving don't miss it